0: This episode of Your Team with Sue and Steph is brought to you by the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Check them out at professionalbooknerds.com or evergreenpodcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Your Teen. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. Our guest today is
1: Peggy Arnstein, author of several books, including Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and many others. Her latest book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity, was released in January of 2020, and she's going to be joining us to discuss what she learned in the process of her research. But before we get to Peggy, we're going to talk about being parents of teenagers and having these conversations. So we have a story. It might be half legend and half true. Well, actually, I'll tell you that the story is 100% true for Dan and I and 100% false for the two children that it impacted. So we were taking two of our kids to college, and someone who worked for us at the time told us this story about when she took her kids to college, she put condoms in their suitcases. And, you know, in college, they're very easily accessible. It's not about getting the condom, but it's about the conversation that goes along with it when your kid is leaving. And so I told my husband about that, And he went over to the local pharmacy, and he came back with packages. We had two kids starting college at the same time, not twins, but one had taken a gap year and one hadn't. And so they were starting the same school at the same time, and so he gave them each a package of condoms. And they couldn't have been more uncomfortable. Like to the point where I felt like they wanted to escape, and they were locked in a car, were driving on the highway, and, like, they couldn't have gotten further away from each other and further into the door without actually exiting. And my husband told this very elaborate story about what it was like to stand in front of the condom aisle, the display, because, as he told them, it had been many years since he needed to purchase them, which was the first, like, oh, God, please no. And then he went through, like, what it was like to look at, like, a jumbo box and thinking, well, I don't have to fund a lot of activity. And he's reporting all of these experiences. And then there's, like, the heightened pleasure. And he's like, I don't really care about that. I just want you to be safe. And so it went on and on and on. And they... We're dying, and so the story I'm telling you right now is the story I vividly remember. There's, it's not because someone else repeated it and I remember it. I vividly remember the moment, and so does Dan. But Jeremy, and for and- the record, so do I because I
0: remember you telling me the story, so I can picture them clawing on the <laughs> yep, sides yep. of the door.
1: Yes, but they will tell a different story. There's not nearly as much much drama from either side. They think they were super cool. They were, you know, like oh, true. here goes Dad again. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, but it, it was fun to live through. I, I, I
0: recommend it for all parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fun for me to live through, and it wasn't my kids. Well, here's mine. One of our kids was leaving for overnight camp, and he was going to be a junior. He was probably 16-ish, and my husband and I were taking the dog for a walk that night. We walked out of our house. That's probably about a 10-minute walk to go around our block walk out of the house, and he said, oh, I need to tell you something. I'm like, oh, what? And he said, I gave gave Zach condoms on his way to camp. And I'm like, wait, you what? And I hit the roof, like completely hit the roof. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's so crazy. He's not even in a relationship. Oh, my God, and he's gone all summer. And by the time we got around the block as we were walking back up the driveway, I was like, that was really well done, honey. Wow, what made you change your mind? Because he was right. He was totally right. And it just wasn't in my head to
1: have the conversation with him. That's such a good story. Like, you said all of the things that you might have kept in your head, but you said them out loud, and it took you toward a conclusion. So I read both of Peggy's books, Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex, and each time I felt I needed the book when my kids were younger. It is remarkable what she shares in both those books, and I've got to be honest; I felt a little bad that I had not mm. really—we had not overachieved in the department of having these conversations
0: with our kids. Same here. If it makes you feel any better, well, I feel I think, the same. I
1: actually think what what Peggy found out when she spoke to kids is that all of us are really doing a terrible job, and that our kids really do want to talk about it, but without the judgment. And so, you know, in the world of wishing for do overs like yeah. that, Peggy provides a book that I would have used had my kids been younger to give me the the courage and the, the words and all those things to be better at having those conversations. So too late for me, but not too late for you guys. Yeah. You should run out and get the books.
0: Well, and one more thing I was just thinking, I may have shared this with Sue, but certainly I didn't share it on our podcast, is that my daughter, who is 17, she and her classmates were assigned Peggy's article that was in The Atlantic, I guess back in December, November, I can't remember. And... She was like, why are they having us, a bunch of girls, read this article about boys and consent? And she was like, this is ridiculous. And after she got done, she's like, that was really good. And I said, was that the sentiment of most of your classmates? She's like, yeah, everybody just thought it was really good. And I was thinking it really, it gave these girls an insight as to, you know, they're, I'm sure they're wondering what's going through these boys' minds. I mean, what a it's kind of a gift to be a high schooler and hear some of that.
1: Well, and it offers so much compassion. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way to read this book and not feel like boys are being given a tough societal responsibility to be, like, stoic and to not show their emotions when they're human and feeling the same emotions that women are and girls are. Yeah. So up next is our conversation with Peggy Orenstein, author of Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. We can't wait for you to join us.
0: So I want to take a second to tell you about another great show from Evergreen Podcasts. And if you know me at all, you know that the only thing I love more than podcasts are books. So combining a book and a podcast is just dreamy. The Professional Book Nerds Podcast is a weekly podcast featuring author interviews and book recommendations, as well as book-related topics. It includes everything from the world's best-selling authors all the way to debut writers about to make a name for themselves. You can hear about how these storytellers craft their writing, what inspires them, and even whom they'd most like to grab dinner with, which actually might be my third favorite topic, food. Their episodes are Mondays and Thursdays, and hosts Jill and Adam are sure to keep your to-be-read list full. They're not just book nerds, they're professional book nerds. Check them out at professionalbooknerds.com or evergreenpodcast.com. You'll be so glad you did.
1: Thanks for being with us, Peggy. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So we're super excited to talk to you. Your books are fascinating. Um, I'm curious, how did you end up being the woman who wrote "Girls and Sex" and "Boys and Sex"? I know, right? <laughs> it's not like when you're
2: when you're 15, you think I'm going to grow up and write <laughs> books about teenagers and sex. You know, it was an evolution of. Um, I've always been interested in how the dynamics of gender affect not only our larger culture, but our personal lives and kind of the politics of intimacy. That's just always like as far back as I can remember something I've been into, I've been interested in, in my own life. And, you know, as, and as it's evolved and, and I also have a really core belief. And this is why I do the books that I, the way that I do where I surface a lot of voices of young people that anybody's story can tell us something larger about the time that we live in. And that's a really good way to think about what's going on in our culture. And then, you know, the other pieces, I, I, I'm a parent. And when I had my daughter and sort of looked around at what had changed and what hadn't changed, I started by writing Cinderella Ate My Daughter was, was the first book I wrote after she was born. Well, I wrote a memoir, but after that, when I look back at that book, there's a, there's a whole sort of two pages towards the end where I just say, you know, this whole idea that girls learn to perform sexy rather than feel their desire in their bodies really worries and concerns me. And it just was like sort of logical on, on on-ramp to girls and sex. And then when I finished girls and sex and I started going around the country with it, everybody started saying, Hey, you only had half a conversation, you know? And I thought, Oh yeah.
1: Did you feel that way as you were writing girls and sex, or was it not until other people pointed out? Well, I mean, yes and no. I thought
2: I thought somebody needed to write about boys, but I just didn't think it was me mm-hmm. because I you know, I spent my whole career writing about girls, and i and I love doing that. But the fact was I'd spent all this time in the trenches of adolescent sexuality. And I knew a lot about it. I knew the terrain. and I thought I should, you know, give a shot anyway. You know, nobody was talking to boys. Nobody was listening to boys. Nobody was having these conversations about sex and intimacy and gender dynamics and masculinity. And we are living in a really rapidly changing time where they're getting a lot of mixed messages. So I thought, well, I'll get, I'll give it a shot, you know, and I was worried that they wouldn't talk to me, you know, that that I would just like have these transcripts that consisted of, uh-huh. Yep.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about that. You know, both your books are based on interviews with girls and boys. Tell us more about the interviews and how long they took. And were many of them, any of them, eager to talk and maybe what you even saw across the genders?
2: I did not expect boys to talk. And they were surprisingly eager to talk. Not, you know, obviously not all of them, but most of them. They they just, nobody had ever asked them or given them permission to explore these issues or to you know, talk about their interior lives. And what was really surprising with them was how, not just that they would talk, but the depth and the rawness and how able they were to narrate their experience and the insight that they had. And I think, you know, it was a learning curve for me. And people always say, you know, how did you get boys to talk? And it's like, there's no secret sauce. There's no trick, you know? It, it But I did know that having talked to girls that early on when I started doing interviews and, and the interviews, you know, If I'm doing a a one time interview, somewhere between, somewhere around two hours is usually when we talk. But a lot of kids I'll talk to over time, you know, multiple times over a year, over two years. We stay in touch, we text, we do whatever. But when I first started talking to girls, the first few interviews were a disaster. And I think because I betrayed my shock and surprise, either by going, you know, what? so I wasn't going in it with this like open curiosity. I, they felt judged and they shut down immediately. And some of them never gave me another chance. They didn't text, you know, they wouldn't return a text. They wouldn't return an email. I was like dead to them. They ghosted. And so I really had to think hard about how I went into those interviews and how I set up both my presence there as being this kind of curious learning presence and also giving them permission to say whatever the heck they wanted to say in whatever kind of language they wanted to say it.
1: So that's a great lesson for parents too like the the reaction kind of dictates whether the conversation continues. When I read the book and when I've spoken with you I think that everything you're doing is so amazing and the way you bring out the conversation in these boys and girls but you're anonymous to them when you walk in the room. Do you see a way to do what you're doing for us, the listener, parents? You know, if I start the conversation with my kid, it's such a different reaction than when you start the conversation in in the goal of research. And, you know, it's a whole other format and you're a whole non-parent.
2: Right. They run screaming from the room, right? (laughs) But at the same time, You know, all the research shows that they want you to talk about these things with them, and especially boys, that they have an even bigger—those conversations have a bigger impact on boys than on girls. You know, it's not our culture as Americans to have those conversations, and that is is how we were raised, and that's how we raise our kids, that they're taboo, that they're supposed to be learning all this stuff somehow on their own, acting it out on their own, learning it on their own in places that are potentially dangerous, potentially unpleasant— you know, it's it's weird that we're that we're so silent around sex and intimacy and the dynamics of gender. But I do think the, what I did with Boys and Sex, which I'd never done with a, a book in quite this way, was the last chapter is kind of a template of not a script, but the types of conversations that we need to start having with our kids and particularly our boys in this book, but a lot of them would work with girls too, that are around you know, around sex, but not just about sex, around consent, but not just about consent.
1: Can you give us an example, like pick one of those stories as a place for a parent to start and a parent who was raised that way and doesn't had how to cross over the line to do something different than, the, what, than what they experienced as a kid. Like, how do you move into this new free space and what would be like the starting point?
2: I think, you know, one starting point is listening. Honestly, it's like listening to one of the podcast interviews that I've done where we've talked about sort of the issues that boys face or the issues that girls face like have it on in the car where they can't escape Mm -hmm. it's always good when they can't escape and don't have to make eye contact and just kind of say like you know we've never talked about this I feel like that was a mistake on my part how do you see this playing out in your life you know is this what hookup culture is like in your life I mean it's it's a lot of sort of little inroads when something happens in the news like the other day in Michigan there was a case of a state senator who was being interviewed by a 22 year old woman in front of a group of boys from an all boys high school that he had attended and at the end of the interview he said hey you should hang around you'd have a lot of fun with these boys or they'd have a lot of fun with you and right right Uh. and so that went national she wrote a beautiful story which would be worth having your kids read. I thought about it in a couple different ways. I mean, obviously, reading that article and thinking about it is something to talk about with your girls and something to talk about with your boys in terms of what the impact is on women of these constant small comments. But the thing that nobody was talking about in that debate, which which I think is also really relevant, is what were those boys standing there and thinking and how many of them were standing there and thinking oh my god i can't believe that guy said that and isn't anybody going to say anything and i'm not going to say anything because i don't want it to turn on me and so it was a real opportunity not just to talk about the impact on young women but how young men grow up in this kind of code of silence around locker room talk and around speaking out and what possible ways there would be to counteract that
1: what i find challenging is like not the third party conversations to have, but the first party conversations. So bringing up what's happening in the news or that you heard something that happened or you read an article, those are kind of neutral and set the ground for this neutral conversation. But you got much deeper with the guys you were talking with. Is that
2: possible between a
1: parent and a teen?
2: I do think so. I mean, I don't like to too often, I don't like to Tell stories about my daughter. I thought she doesn't allow me to tell stories about her anymore. She has like <laughs> dropped the curtain. Stop it, mom. But I will say that having done this work for so many years, we have those conversations, and you know, I go there in terms of things like, um, you know, female pleasure or, dyna- you know, gender dynamics. Or I mean, I'm constantly sometimes I'm yelling at her, retreating back, but we're still having the conversation, and she's still hearing what I have to say. So I think you know. Opening those doors when she was much younger, I feel lucky that I was able to do that. That, you know, we started having conversations when she was tiny about, you know, whether what the, the, the two pixel waist that the princesses had in the princess movies, you know, and like where's her uterus? Is it in her purse? And just being sort of scaffolding those small conversations that were more third-party conversation towards more first party conversations about what a person should expect in an intimate relationship whether that relationship lasts 5 minutes or 50 years what what a clitoris is what female orgasm is you know what these whole all the dynamics that silence female pleasure or disconnect boys from their hearts i mean i do this as my job so dropping those conversations into my actual family maybe that's easier but not really
1: i'm going to uh, move into something that I think is a really big challenge. It's a quote that you include in your book, silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny is how boys become men. So you talk about like the locker room and what happens if a boy will stand up against like the the like the like guy who spoke the other day that you, you uh, just addressed and what happens, how it's a little bit of social suicide at that moment. So so what do we do? How do we get our kids to do something that, you know, when they're all trying to fit in, we're saying to them, don't be that person, don't be that
2: guy. I know. So first of all, I, I will get back to this in a second, but first of all, I've I've been we've been really reflecting again on the on the work I've done with girls. And that when I first put out my first book on girls, which was School Girls in 1994, there was a lot of it was around this discussion of how girls when they hit their teen years, they were losing their voice, they were they were hesitant, they weren't willing to stand up in class, they weren't willing to go into leadership, their self-esteem was suffering, et cetera. And when I would go around and talk about that book, parents would, would you know, be like, yes, yes, we need to do something about this. This is, you know, our girls are, are living with this contradiction, and it's, they're suffering. And yet, they would also come up to me privately and go, yeah, but if I raise my personal daughter to be more assertive to stand up to shine bright to you know state her opinion to not be a pleaser that's social suicide she's not you know other other kids are going to call her a bitch boys aren't going to like her girls aren't are, are not going to like her i don't know what to do and over time that has really changed like there has just been sort of a tide of of recognition and work that has supported us in broadening the idea of what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a woman and it's not perfect and there's still a lot of issues and the sort of reduction to your body and sexualization and everything is real but it's better and i feel like we're at that point with boys right now where we're seeing like this is unsustainable but it's scary to think about making change. So I would say that is kind of an opener. And specifically around the locker room talk, I mean, I don't feel like I, I get asked this a lot. And I just had this conversation with this boy who was a Division One athlete who emailed me and asked what he could do about that. And, it, it, you know, it's not easy. There's no easy answer to it. But I think, you know, the first line is coaches, like if there is a if the coach is not actually participating in that behavior hopefully if you think athletics and some of these all-male enclaves along with that you know around that are supposed to be character building are supposed to give young men you know ideas of of what it means to be a decent guy well you know they're kind of failing miserably on that front it's a smokescreen and a lot of times instead it ends up reinforcing the kind of worst aspects of bro culture where you know the, the, that kind of locker room talk where guys you know, they pound, they hammer, they nail, they bang. That's how they talk about sex, right? Like it's a visit to a construction site rather than an intimate act. And and it's about bonding as straight guys through the control of female bodies. So coaches, there's a program called Coaching Boys Into Men that is a really light intervention that is like once a week, a 15 minute conversation that has been found in high school and now they just put out a report like a week or so ago that they found it was really had an impact in middle school on boys in terms of reducing sexual violence increasing bystander intervention and reducing that kind of weaponized language that guys use in the locker room so i would say first line is coaches if that doesn't if that's not a possibility you know trying to find ways to find like-minded boys, because there's a lot of boys who are standing there thinking, oh, God, I hate this, but they don't ever talk to each other.
0: It's interesting. You know, we're sitting here talking about, you know, the locker room chatter. What happens in the locker room, you know, this whole bro culture and a natural segue is to talk about porn. And you you say, we aren't going to be able to block our way out of this. And I'm curious, what did you learn from the boys that you spoke with and interviewed that can help us deal with this crisis?
2: You know, if you if you back back up two steps before we get there and say that so much of growing up as a guy is about this disconnection that's forcing you between your sense of vulnerability and and your emotional connection and the world as guys would always talk about you know putting up a wall and or I'm only allowed happiness and anger and that sort of disconnection from emotion and expectation that you're detached and the use of and that sex will be um, a source of conquest and status seeking. And then that's reinforced in that locker room culture. If they're there, it's also reinforced, not just in porn, but in mainstream media, you know, constantly this idea of that, you know, male sexual aggression and domination and entitlement and female sexual submission and uh, objectification. And it's, I mean, one guy said to me, look, I think music is a real source of how guys treat girls. You're, you're driving around you know, you're driving around with your friends in a car and you hear fuck that bitch and quitter four, six, ten times over the course of a couple hours, you know, it it affects your mindset. So we can have the porn discussion and I want to, but I also want to recognize that in some ways mainstream media can be, you know, more, can, can give those messages to guys more because at least there's some sense that porn is, you know, taboo or, or there's some kind you know there's something going on there whereas if it's just like on um, family guy or what you're listening to on spotify and that's unquestioned you know that then that's normal to to the porn question it's really important to say you know it, I, I don't want to put shame into this so understanding that curiosity about sex is normal and masturbation is like great and important for everybody but what has changed is that in 2007 Pornhub went online and the paywall dropped on pornography. So suddenly, so if you have a child who grew up, who went through puberty, right, you know, 2007 or after, it's a different world. And they can get anything that you can imagine and really a very large amount of stuff that nobody wants to imagine on their smartphones, 24 hours a day. And I always say to parents, particularly mothers, because they often haven't done this, if you haven't looked at that, if you haven't gone and looked at Pornhub, you kind of need to. Because you really do need to see what, if, you, if you've if you got some 70s idea of porn in your head or some 80s idea of porn in your head, that's not what they're looking at. So what that over and over, you know, what they see is sex is, is this distorted idea of sex as something that men do to women, female pleasure as a performance for men, a lot of eroticized violence, a lot of eroticized humiliation, a lot of things even in vanilla clips that really wouldn't feel good to most people, particularly to women. And when we aren't talking to them as parents, as teachers, as advocates, that's the de facto sex education. And they bring those ideas with them into the bedroom. So
1: it's interesting because this is a hard place to say, well, you should share the experience with your child
2: so that you can talk about it. Yes, you do have to talk to them, but, you know, like don't go watching porn with your kid or something. Right, But but, but But you need to know, yeah, yeah there's some research that i found super interesting out of indiana university that that looked at parent child dyads and porn so fathers and sons mothers and daughters of teenagers and found that across the board the kids were watching both boys and girls watching more porn and harder core porn than their parents with the boys it was, the differential was was three times they, they were three times more likely to see things like gangbangs facial abuse bdsm you know, that that sort of clip. And with girls, the differential was actually higher between them and their mothers. So what parents think when they think porn may not be accurate to what their kids are seeing. And yeah, I mean, you don't want to like curate your kid's porn or whatever, but, and we can't really censor our way out of it, but you have got to talk to your children. And that's one of the things that I, I felt was really useful, I hoped, with Boys and Sex was this chapter on porn because it, it you know, your kid can read it, your teenager can read it. And they have to know what's real and what's not real and what's missing and what, you know, a a healthy, mutually gratifying, personally fulfilling sexual relationship ought to be. Does it
1: matter who's having the conversation? Like, were girls mostly talking to their mothers and boys mostly to their fathers or... And did it make a
2: difference? Just generally speaking or... Yeah. Just in general about, about sex. Yeah. Mothers generally talk to both... Mothers talk more than dads, period. I mean, just across the board, um... I mean, fathers really don't, when I would ask girls, did, what did your father tell you about sex? They would just laugh. And boys would say, they wish that their father had talked to them more. And it was interesting because they would say, I wish that he talked to me about sex. They'd say, I wish that he talked to me about emotions, about sex, you know, like the, the intimate side of it. And they kind of wish that their dad had talked to them about regret and, and, you know, how you deal with regret when you've done something that you're not happy with, or when things don't go well, or, you know, and that kind of surprised me.
1: Wow. I like that even for moms. Like, that's a really big thing to say to us right now, that we can tell our kids, you know, the things that didn't go well for us.
2: Yeah. And, you know, in an age-appropriate way. And and also, boys, I will say that the boys, and these were older teenagers, not younger teenagers, but older teenagers and college boys whose mothers had told them that they had been assaulted, like in college or high school, really looked at these issues very differently. Than, than other boys and, and with much more concern and sensitivity. And I wish it didn't take that to inspire that kind of empathy, but that did do that. So it was just, I, I, and I don't know, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't disclose these things to your children, but it did affect boys very deeply.
0: So we're going we're gonna to wrap up with a question we ask all of our guests, and that is, what's the biggest parenting myth?
2: I think from my perspective in the work that I do, It's that our kids don't want to hear from us and that we should allow them to sort of grow up and find their own way in this stew of conflicting messages that they get about sex and intimacy and body and gender when really they so need to hear from us. And particularly today when... The messages, the contradictory messages are so intense, particularly with boys where they're getting such mixed messages in contemporary culture about, you know, on one hand, that consent is super important. On the other hand, through media, that men are supposed to be dominant and ignore that their, you know, their pleasure is more important than women's feelings. We don't have the luxury of being silent on these issues anymore. We have to talk to our kids or, you know, the media is going to raise them for us.
1: Wow, thank you so much. That was excellent advice. We are I'm gonna push myself. It's gonna be awkward, but I'm definitely gonna have a conversation about this and I'm gonna get back to you, Peggy, and tell you how it went.
2: You know what's been really cool, I have to tell you, the coolest thing about having put these books out and putting the boys' book out in particular is that I am getting emails from parents all over the place saying that they have, you know, stepped up from the awkward and they're talking to their boys. And I've also, by the way, gotten some emails and texts from people who said that their husband read the book or was reading the book and it was improving their sex lives so that was kind of interesting
1: all around just a really good resource for us (laughs) and maybe that's your next book how what what's what you created out of this these two books thank you so much for being with us thanks a lot
0: thanks for joining us for your teen with sue and steph if you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your team with Sue and Steph is a
1: production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer, Michael DeAloya plus producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Eric Koltnow.
0: If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.